Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Oh my God, June is already here. STAT reporter Lizzie Lawrence joins us to explain the shocking story of a medical device company that sold fake plastic implants and the warp system that made the scam lucrative. We'll also preview the year's biggest cancer research meeting, discuss a surprising twist with novel weight loss medicines, and talk about the week's biggest news in the life sciences. But first, a word from our sponsor. What does operational inefficiency look like in clinical trials? For sponsors, it means lagging patient recruitment and no way to see enrollment barriers. At research sites, it looks like manual paperwork jamming the enrollment process. One study team's mission is to accelerate the development of new and life-saving therapies by bringing clinical workflows online. This enables sites, sponsors, and stakeholders to work together on a common cloud-based platform, study team. The result, efficient workflows, increased enrollment, visibility into enrollment barriers, and one clear path to faster therapeutic development. Learn more at onestudyteam.com stat. That's O-N-E studyteam.com stat. All right, so it is June, something that is stunning all of us, but the beginning of June, of course, in this world means ASCO. Adam, you are headed to Chicago this weekend, and I am so jealous because you're going to my favorite diner in the entire world, and I do not get to go with you. Shout out to the 11 City Diner. I will be there Friday morning for breakfast. And I will be thinking of you, Meg, while I'm eating my lox, eggs, and onions. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're going to be sending me pictures, and I would be so jealous. But anyway, more importantly, you know, debatable than the diner food is the research. <laughs> it's definitely more important. Uh, so right. tell us what you are most looking forward to learning uh, this weekend. Yes, I think as most of our listeners know, ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. It's the world's largest cancer drug research meeting. Tens of thousands of cancer researchers and biotech and pharma company executives will be in town to go look at, you know, to go over, look at the latest in cancer drug research. Um, this meeting, it's, you know, this it's kind of a big pharma meeting from my perspective, and, and it's been that way for many years. Um, probably some of the biggest uh, data presentations will be focused on uh, on what we what we know as antibody drug conjugates. You know, these are antibodies that uh, that that have a linker and then a sort of chemotherapy payload, and they directly target that chemotherapy to cancer cells. Uh, it's a it's a technology that has been in the news lately. Uh, it was obviously the focus of Pfizer's uh, big acquisition of Cgen. Uh, Gilead has made uh, a lot of moves with ADCs. Uh, AstraZeneca and the Japanese pharma company Daiichi Sankyo have have a, an ADC that is also um, very effective in breast cancer. So we're going to see a lot more data on on various uh, antibody drug conjugates, including uh, some data from a company called Immunogen in ovarian cancer, uh, where they extended the survival of patients with advanced ovarian cancer. I think that's pretty significant. Um, also, some data on uh, targeted uh, targeted medicines, medicines that target various mutations in cancer. Um, you know, one of the largest, or one of the best selling and most successful cancer drugs these days is a drug called Tegriso. It's sold by AstraZeneca. Uh, it's a, it's pretty much the standard of 
care for certain patients with lung cancer. And there will be data at the plenary session uh, from a study. It's kind of a follow-on analysis of an already successful clinical trial that show it, that's going to show a survival benefit. We, we don't know what that survival benefit is, the magnitude of that survival benefit is, yet those data will be disclosed on Sunday at ASCO. But uh, but I think that those data will be uh, will be very meaningful. It's kind of an interesting moment in oncology research, it feels like, because you know the ADC technology that you're describing that seems to have kind of come of age in recent years, I guess, has been around for quite a long time. I remember you know the, the dawn of it and all of the big pronouncements of of its you know inevitable game-changing future that at least initially didn't really play out there were some clinical failures and there were some just kind of like if not disappointments but but just medicines that worked but maybe not to the extent that it once seemed like they might and so to see that come to fruition now is kind of interesting that it just took years of tinkering and finding the right targets and maybe using different constructs to actually actualize the potential that people have been talking about for more than a decade. Yeah, I think that's really it, Damon. I think you, you hit it there. You know, the, maybe the early the early ADCs, you know, either the target of the antibody wasn't the right target or, you know, these are really complex molecules because you've got this antibody and then you've got basically this linker molecule, which basically attaches the antibody to the chemotherapy. And then you have the chemotherapy itself. So, you know, all of these things sort of have to work right for the drug to be effective. And, and and I think maybe some of the earlier versions or earlier generations of antibody drug conjugates were not as precise. You know, some of them had uh, more toxicity than others. And so now you're sort of sort of finally tuning it. I think there's one, one kind of wrinkle to this, uh, which is su- super interesting, is there is going to be some research presented at the meeting, which asks the question of whether or not you actually need the, the the actual specific targeting of the antibody to have these drugs be effective and there's some there's some kind of train of thought that you know that it's not really the the protein or the the target that the antibody hones in on that is really important here it's more about sort of the slow release of of the chemotherapy into the tumor cell so um i don't know if that's going to sort of change anyone's thinking about adcs but it is kind of it's sort of some provocative research so they're like, let's just go back to chemotherapy, but release it more slowly. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I'm sure it's way more complicated than that. You know, I'm interested in the fact, Adam, that you pointed out ASCO has become this sort of more big pharma type of meeting. Um, and I don't use big pharma with the like capital B, capital P. I mean, like larger pharmaceutical companies type of meeting. Is that just a fact of, you know, that they have these really successful cancer drugs that are on the market and are finding new indications uh, and they're acquiring companies that are doing work on things like antibody drug conjugates? Or does it say something about where the pipeline is for smaller biotech companies in cancer? Are they as focused on it as they have been in the past? Or are there sort of new areas that now are capturing so much investor, uh, you know, and researcher attention that cancer isn't as huge an area for biotech as it had been? I think it's all of those things, Meg. Uh, I think it's been a gradual trend. And I, I don't want to say that this is like, you know, biotech is not important, uh, is not an important player for in oncology, you know, and, and I'm talking about maybe smaller, or mid-sized biotech companies, because for sure, you know, we've seen a lot of companies develop successful drugs and, and some a lot of the innovation and, and uh, new technologies have been first developed by biotech companies. So I think those were important. You know, it just, it, I think cancer has become such a big well, it's become a big business, uh, and ASCO is, is certainly an example of that. And so a lot of these times, the, the data that 
are uh, are presented, you know, just are coming out of pharma companies, and either they, they either they've acquired that technology from smaller biotech companies, or they've developed it in house. Yeah, it does kind of seem like a snapshot of where we're at, Adam, because the you know most of the medicines you mentioned, right, I don't have the list in front of me, but you know the ADCs and some of these novel cancer targets. I recall we recall the biotech companies that invented and developed them that were then acquired by the Gilead Sciences of the world that are now presenting them at ASCO. So in a sense, it's almost maybe pharma moved up the food chain a little bit versus years past where it did seem like quite often there was some biotech company you perhaps had never heard of that was like the star of ASCO whose stock price would blow up on Monday morning because of data uh, over the weekend. And now that company is just like apparently getting acquired before it even has that opportunity. And I should also note, Meg, in addition to sort of being at the diner and having breakfast at Eleven City Diner, um, I will be trying to avoid the the traffic and mobs that will be uh, the Taylor Swift oh. shows. That uh, <laughs> in a sort of unfortunate twist of the scheduling, uh, Asco is being convened at the same time that Taylor Swift lands for three nights at uh, the big stadium that's right next to the convention center. So uh, it'll be Ascovites and Swifties uh, all over Chicago this weekend. Continuing the biotech conference, coinciding with Taylor Swift shows, right? Didn't that happen at Ash last last winter or last fall? <laughs> it, it sort of happened where where Taylor Swift happened to be in New Orleans at the same time as the Ash meeting. Yes, that that was that was also true. Maybe she just really likes biotech. <laughs> so moving on from oncology, a, a common topic on this podcast and and really in conversations around the country and around the world is the advent of novel medicines for initially type 2 diabetes and now for weight loss that we call GLP-1 drugs, uh, weak OV being the star one, but many others coming soon. Meg, you wrote a story this week that I thought was really fascinating, exploring this, I mean, is it an externality? Side effect is the wrong term, but basically these drugs are approved to curb your appetite by slowing the uh, rate of emptying of the stomach and according to the FDA, uh, approved label by doing something in the brain <laughs> that affects your feelings of fullness, of satiety, um, to kind of curb hunger. But there is perhaps something else going on or something we don't totally understand about that because these medicines appear to be having effects on cravings that are go beyond food. Do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is really, really interesting. The most I've heard from doctors, uh, the biggest effect they've heard from patients on Ozempic or Wagovi um, is an effect on alcohol. Like you just kind of lose interest uh, or some people lose interest in drinking alcohol while they're on these medicines. And in some sense, you can think like, oh, that's something you consume. It's a beverage. Maybe you just don't have your appetite for it. But there is some evidence that GLP-1s are working also in the brain as well as in the rest of the body uh, and could actually be affecting the reward centers uh, in such a way that you lose this sort of rewarding feeling from drinking alcohol or even smoking. Or they're also looking at this in drugs like fentanyl use. Um, the research is very, very early at the moment. Um, I talked with a wonderful researcher at the NIH, Dr. Lorenzo Leggio, um, whose name I did not pronounce as beautifully as he did when we taped with him. 
Um, but, you know, he he just published a paper looking at this in mice and rats um, in alcohol use disorder. So very, very early. But it did show that using semaglutide helped them stop the sort of binge drinking uh, behavior. Um, and he's also testing it in fentanyl use disorder. And so but it's also something that, you know, people who are on Ozempic or Wagovi are just sort of reporting as something they are experiencing. They're telling their doctors about it and saying, like, is this the drug causing this? And the conversations I've had with doctors is it's plausible, but we don't have evidence to say with certainty that it is. So there is at least one team of researchers at UNC Chapel Hill who are running clinical trials looking at this in both alcohol use disorder and um, smoking cigarettes uh, just to see if you know using semaglutide can reduce those behaviors. So they don't have results yet, but I was talking with the researcher running the trials and he said the amount of incoming they're getting and just the amount of sort of anecdotal uh, discussion about these feelings that people have is unprecedented, he said, you know, in terms of, you know, running the human clinical trials, but hearing about this sort of externally so much, which is just really fascinating. And we spoke with a patient for a story on CNN this week who said she started Ozempic 11 weeks ago and a month into treatment, she decided to just try not vaping. And she'd been a lifelong smoker. She'd switched to vaping last summer. She said she put her vape pen down and she never picked it up again. She just like sort of described the effect of this drug on her brain as like quieting the voices that were constantly telling her to think about what she's going to eat next, have another drink, you know, vape, smoke, whatever it is. She just said like my brain finally is quiet. And she said like that weight off her mind was so much more powerful than the weight she's lost with the medicine. You know, she's lost about 40 pounds. Um, so she's happy with that, too. But um, you know, it's really just so, so interesting to hear about what these medicines are doing. You know, that's really fascinating, Meg. What are the pharmaceutical companies who are developing these drugs? You know, uh, Lilly, Novo Nordisk, Pfizer, are, are they talking about these alternative, potential alternative uses for these drugs? Yeah. So I reached out to both of them. And, you know, these companies are so careful to explain what their drugs are actually approved for because there's so much discussion of off-label use of them. So, you know, they're approved for type 2 diabetes in the case of Ozempic and Manjaro and for weight loss uh, in the case of Wagovi. Neither Novo nor Lilly is, according to them, currently looking at testing these for addiction or, you know, addictive behaviors, which is, I thought was really interesting because, According to uh, the NIH or the Institute on, um, I think it's alcohol abuse and alcoholism, um, there's about 30 million Americans who have alcohol use disorder and less than 5% get treatment for it. So this is a huge problem, but it really hasn't been a successful market for the pharmaceutical industry for, I think, a number of reasons. And so the companies really just aren't focused Yet in this area, I don't know if at any point they would become focused in this area, but it obviously the researchers we talk to say this is a huge need and we don't have great medicines in this space right now. I can see from Novo's perspective, well, one, wanting to keep this at arm's length for all the regulatory reasons you described, but also they can't keep it on the shelf for the indications for which it's currently mm -hmm. approved and used off-label to where they paused advertising of Ozempic just to not add additional demand. And then, you know, we saw positive data for the oral version of semaglutide, um, which uses 50 milligrams of drug per day, whereas the injectable version, I think, is more like 2.4 milligrams per drug per day. And so even the process of filing that for FDA approval based on the positive data is something the company did not commit to a time frame for because, again, they are struggling just to make enough 
um, to seed it. I, yeah, I think this is fascinating. I, I hope that there is more elucidation of, of what like the mechanism is uh, in the brain, if, if that's exactly what's happening here, or if it's a combination of physiology and, and neurology. Um, it's also just, you know, a, an injection that like, like, so like the Zen principle of, you know, transcendence through uh, the elimination of desire, it seems so incredibly Western that like that sounds really hard. So we somehow invented an injection that does it like we have a drug for Zen is like this, like will self David Foster Wallace invention. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to just like look forward as to, as to what this means. Like it gets into, you know, conversations that we sometimes have where, a medicine with a biological effect um, starts to have like social and even like psychological implications. And if this is something that's teased out and in some future, this drug carries an FDA approval for type two diabetes, weight loss, and also, you know, substance use disorders and everything beyond that, what does that mean? Like a product that would, what would those advertisements look like? How would, how would we like approach the notion of getting prescribed something like this. I don't know. It just, I, I can understand the many reasons that the companies aren't really touching this because it's, it's fraught um, even without data to, to support it. If podcasts had footnotes, we'd insert one right here with the first ever read out loud, David Foster Wallace reference. <laughs> <laughs> love it, Damien. Absolutely love it. For people suffering from chronic pain, nerve-stimulating medical devices can be an effective treatment option and an alternative to potentially addictive opioids. The downside is that many of these devices, which have been around for decades, are powered by clunky batteries that need to be implanted in patients' bodies. Stimwave, a medical device maker, offered a better approach, or at least what seemed to be better. Its nerve stimulator was sleek and worked with a more comfortable and wearable battery that attached to thin wires under the skin. But the Stimwave device, it turns out, also contained fake plastic parts that were medically unnecessary. The company lied to physicians about the dummy parts and overcharged Medicare by millions of dollars, thereby boosting its profits. When the fraudulent scheme came to light, the DOJ indicted Stimwave CEO, who now faces up to 20 years in prison. Stat reporter Lizzie Lawrence wrote a piece this week about Stimwave, which illustrated how financial incentives in the medical device field can warp patient care and how easy it is for device fraud to fall through the regulatory cracks. And she joins us now to talk about it. Lizzie, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's step back for just a minute and explain to listeners how these nerve stimulators work to alleviate chronic pain and then how the Stimwave device was different. So we've been using nerve stimulators to treat chronic pain for actually thousands of years. Um, and, and Medtronic was the first company to sell one in 1968. Um, and, and the way the devices work is by sending electric signals um, either to the spinal cord or directly to nerves to block pain signals from reaching the brain. So typically, the device has a big implantable component. Um, many systems sell these Simulators with, you know, kind of a big implantable battery that is the the source of the uh, electricity, and and this might be preferable for some patients who, you know, don't want to have to think about the device. It's just all implanted in their body. But it can also be more risky. There's there's not an easy way to remove a battery that is inside you and then all of a sudden becomes defective and you know starts shocking you with 
electricity, uh, which is pretty scary. So StimWave was different in that um, all that got implanted was a skinny electrode lead that directly stimulated the nerves just under the skin. And then patients would wear uh, have a wearable battery pack that transferred power across the skin. So it was less invasive and it, it really it promised to free patients from a battery that would, you know, could fall apart in their body. So this was it's, it was a really appealing idea to people in the space, especially at the time Stimwave went on the market. Um, in around, you know, 2015, 2016, at, at the height of the opioid epidemic, when people really wanted more alternatives to painkillers. The innovation that Stimwave promised with its device had a financial flaw, at least from the company's uh, perspective. Right, Lizzie? Yeah, yeah. So the so the other thing about internal batteries or or the health insurance kind of term is quote unquote, implantable pulse generators is that, so these these internal batteries get the big bucks from insurers. They're pretty justifiably expensive because they're, they're built to last up to a decade in a patient's body. Um, Stimwave's system didn't need an internal battery. So that meant doctors couldn't charge insurers as much money as they could have with um, a competitor's device that had an internal battery. And, and Stimwave CEO, Laura Perryman, um, who was Stimwave CEO at the time, was really worried about this. Would doctors buy her device if they weren't going to make as much money on it? And, and it also meant that Stimwave couldn't sell its device for as much as it wanted to. And so the company came up with a creative solution. There's many adjectives that could apply to this, but tell us what happened next, let's say. Yeah. So so the first version of Stimway's device that went through the FDA um, just had this small electrode lead that stimulated the nerves and a wearable battery. They then um, added in a later version something called a receiver, which was a copper part that uh, Stimwave claimed helped enhance stimulation, but at the very least, it it did let Stimwave sell its device for far more money because doctors can charge between sixteen to eighteen thousand dollars just for this receiver. It's unclear if, if even this copper receiver was necessary. In in um, the, the DOJ said it wasn't needed to transfer electricity when patients were able to wear the external battery very close to that skinny electrode lead. But but at, at the least, it this copy receiver made it the process of implantation harder. And so doctors went to the company and complained because they said, hey, this this receiver was is very difficult to place in, you know, small areas in the body, like, you know, around an, an elbow, for instance. And and former employees told me that they had a lot of trouble kind of getting this receiver to fit um, with the device. So that's where the fraud comes in, where um, Stimwave CEO came up with an alternative receiver that was made solely out of plastic that did nothing to help with the stimulation um, and you know was therefore medically unnecessary. But the plastic was easier to fit into patients' bodies. And, and she directed employees to lie to doctors and tell them that one of these two receivers is absolutely always necessary. Um, and, you know, just kind of describing the plastic piece as just an adjustable or, you know, advanced version of the copper receiver. And and they, um, and she encouraged doctors to use the same billing code for the plastic and copper versions. Yikes. So <laughs> tell us about the sort of legal journey here, both for the company and then the former CEO. So this came out as as the result of 
a whistleblower in the company, um, and the DOJ started investigating around 2019. And so in, in March, the scope of this kind of came to light, and um, the DOJ indicted Laura Perryman, who was the CEO, um, and, and Perryman has pleaded not guilty. Um, but they they indicted Perryman and accused her of um, kind of masterminding the scheme. So so Perryman, that process is still ongoing, but she may face up to you know twenty years in prison. And Stimway of the company, which actually fired Perryman in 2019, um, has agreed to pay ten million in penalties and kind of acknowledged and settled these allegations of knowingly enabling false Medicare claims. So, you know, we mentioned at the top that one of the things your story illustrates is kind of how, again, how financial incentives in the medical device field can can warp patient care and, and how easy it is for, for this kind of stuff to, to fall through the regulatory cracks. And I wonder if you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit more. You know, how, how did this, you know, what is fraud, medical fraud, escape doctors and, and even the FDA? With doctors, in this instance, the doctors I spoke to said that... Um, the differences between the plastic and copper receiver, because they had the same kind of external plastic coating, would have been hard to pick up on um, and, and kind of told me, you know, honestly, we just we trust device representatives to give us devices that work. We don't really do an investigation or ask too many questions. Um, and I will say in this case, it's it's an especially you know, weird, convoluted type of fraud where, um, you know, it's it's not clear how much the plastic affected the core functioning of the device. And also in this case, it's, it does seem like doctors were, were duped, but you can also imagine a situation where a doctor who, you know, doesn't have that much knowledge about the workings of device um, doesn't ask too many questions about a device when there's a clear path to, to insurance coverage there. And, and then with, with the FDA, um, in this instance, the FDA never saw the plastic version. Um, Stimwave only submitted the copper receiver. But, but even if it had submitted the plastic version, it would have been difficult for the FDA to catch um, because of the regulatory pathway that Stimwave went through. Because, um, as I said, nerve simulators have been around for a while, and so most makers of the de- these devices use something called the, the 510K device pathway, which allows devices on the market if they can just prove that they're substantially equivalent to an existing device. And it critically, it does not require any clinical data. And, and with Stimwave, I only found you know one small scale clinical trial, and it seems like they've run others, but those results aren't public. So this device and many devices like this go, you know, go to market without clear evidence that it works or, you know, and in Stimwave's case, that it needed this copper receiver to function, for example. A former FDA reviewer, reviewer that I spoke to really emphasized this to me that, you know, reviewers are swamped and especially with 510K, you know, and so many because so many devices use this pathway um, since it's you know sort of a lower bar. You don't have to do large scale clinical tri- trials. Um, the FDA, you know, doesn't have a lot of time to ask lots of questions about how this device works. So as you mentioned earlier, this is, all of this is kind of coming to a head and being adjudicated in the fairly recent past. But have there been any changes either, you know, on the regulatory side or even just the implementation of um, how these processes work as a result of this case? Or have you heard from anyone describing a way in which something like this could be avoided in the future? 
there haven't been changes yet, as far as I can tell. Um, I would love, and, and a lot of people would love, to have the FDA encourage more device makers to provide data before they start implanting things in patients. Um, and <laughs> the other thing I would say is, you know, while StemWave is, is clearly in the wrong here, it, it does raise interesting questions about how our health insurance payment system makes it really difficult to secure payment if your device is different. Um, you know, or new or novel. So, you know, Stemwave's great innovation was also a great weakness when it came to payment. And it didn't want to have to lobby CMS for a new code, which is notoriously difficult. Um, so so that's also a systemic issue that, that device makers may warp their devices to fit existing billing codes. And um, this is actually something that CMS is supposed to address with, with a new rule in the coming months. So that'll, that will be interesting to see. So what has happened to the patients who were implanted with this device? Based on recall records, um, because I couldn't get the company to talk to me, um, it seems around 8,000 patients were implanted with the plastic component. Um, and, and former employees told me that, so Stimwave came clean to the entire company in early 2020 about this fraud and instructed employees that to, to follow up with each patient who received the dummy component and give them the option to switch. But neither the FDA nor the DOJ has forced the company to do this, and, and Stimwave hasn't, wouldn't tell me if they have, have actually followed up with every patient. You know, luckily, the implant, however unnecessary, did not uh, pose severe risks to patients, um, according to a, a evaluation that was referenced by the D- DOJ. But employees, former employees told me it, it caused problems for some. It, it reduced kind of the, the efficacy of the stimulation that was supposed to treat pain. And in some cases, it would enable the device to migrate to other parts of the body because it's, you know, it's plastic. And it's just not good to have anything implanted in your body that doesn't have a real use. And I, I did connect with a patient um, who, you know, a woman whose whose mother had this device and who tried desperately to figure out, you know, after after seeing the DOJ report, tried to figure out if her mother had been a victim, um, and she had never received any no- notification from Stimwave or her doctor about this, and she really struggled to get answers. She like she finally got a representative from the company on the line, which is used to be Stimwave, now it's called Curonix, and was swiftly sort of pushed to the company's legal team. Um, eventually, she got an answer, and luckily her mother had the copper implant, not the plastic one, but um, still she's angry. She had to try so hard to hound the company and find this out, and and there, you know, there really has been no recourse for patients or, um, you know, forced follow-up. You know, stories like this always remind me of how different the oversight of the, the regulation of medical devices is than, than it is for drugs. Uh, it's a great story, Lizzie, and thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you so much, and thanks for letting me talk about it. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Bonato for producing this week's episode. Hyacinth is also a senior producer as well as Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're going to ASCO or going to Taylor Swift. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.